Hey, I'm joined today by uh, Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer. They are the authors of a new Disney history book called Disneyland on the Mountain. And as you might guess, if you've been around this beat for a while, it's about Mineral King, the uh, ski resort that never was, as the uh, as the uh, subtitle says, Walt the Environmentalist and the Ski Resort that was never was. This is one of the best Disney history books I've read in a long time. And to find out a little bit more about this story, which isn't exactly what a lot of Disney fans might think, and why this book is so good, we're going to be talking here today with Catherine and Greg. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Robert. We're so excited to, to talk with you about this. And thank you for your kind words about the book, too. We, that's so appreciated coming from you. Why don't we get started by, uh, why don't you introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about yourselves, and uh, when did you first hear about Mineral King? Sure. Uh, yeah, so my name is Greg Glasgow, and this is Catherine Mayer, my wife. We're a married couple and co-writers. We live uh, just a little bit south of Denver, and longtime Disney fans came into this definitely as fans of Disney. We, you know, like most Disney people had heard little bits and pieces of the Mineral King story here and there, but never knew too much about it. And mm -hmm. we were actually at the Walt Disney Family Museum back in 2018 in San Francisco and saw just a small mention on their big timeline of Walt's life, small mention of the ski resort project in Mineral King. And what really piqued our interest was that it mentioned that one of his partners on the project was a guy named Willie Schaeffler. And he was a well-known skier here in Colorado. He actually was the head ski coach at the University of Denver at the time this was all happening. And Catherine actually graduated from DU. We met working at DU. So that name really caught our interest that this DU guy was involved with this story and started just kind of looking into it some more out of journalistic curiosity and realized there was this whole you know big story and this environmental fight and this case that went to the Supreme Court and you know kind of thought it might make a good book and you know as far as we could tell no one else had really had done it so yeah definitely I mean uh I think uh, I had long thought as a lot of Disney fans do that um you know Mineral King was just this thing that Walt was working on that the company just kind of decided to drop after he passed away because they were so focused on Disney World and um Turns out there's a lot more to it than just that. Uh, when researching this book, what was one of the early things you discovered that convinced you this really was a story worth telling that hadn't been told in this way before? I think exactly what you just said was that I think coming into it, we thought, you know, just like a lot of other people who've read books on Walt Disney and known a lot about Disney, or so we thought just the small mention that at one mm -hmm. point Walt Disney the Disney company tried to build the ski resort and you know for whatever reasons it didn't work out you know one of those Disney phenomena we've heard about some of the other failed projects of course and but then looking into this realizing no they actually tried to do this for so long I mean we basically yeah. start the story in 1960, when Walt was at the Winter Olympics and played a big role there, which is a whole other interesting story. And that that was of... that was not something that I knew much about. Exactly. Before yeah, same. And so, again, finding out so much of this and realizing that this essentially lasted for almost two decades. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who are sort of familiar with Disney or very familiar with Disney maybe know, yeah, again, a little bit of the basics but maybe not realizing just how long this battle was, how monumental it was for, for the Disney company. 
and for environmental history, for American history, and realizing, again, that there was just so much to it and, and thinking, okay, hopefully there's there's a bigger story. There's a book here. Before we get too deep into the story, I want to just hit a little bit more on your background. Are either of you skiers? No, 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 not at all, which is... <laughs> I, we have to be honest about this. I've skied a couple of times. I think Greg has too. Yeah. And being from Colorado yeah. or living here, I think people assume it's one of those things where usually when I introduce myself to people and say, you know, I'm from Colorado. No, I don't ski. I usually say those things basically at the same time, but, but no, not really. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I mean, Sounds like I'm coming to this from a similar perspective that you guys did. I have a little bit of a Colorado connection. Before uh, I moved back to Los Angeles, I lived in in Denver for about four years. And oh. actually, my daughter went to DU too, so we've got oh, some okay. some some DU connections going on at that point. But yeah. uh, I'm not a skier at all. The only time I'm on a ski slope is in the summer when I'm hiking down it. Yeah, I tried skiing once and I blew out my knee on the bunny slope in ski school <laughs> and just that's it. We're done with yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but this really was kind of a, a, a huge missed opportunity for the ski industry. Um, putting all of the Disney stuff aside as, as Disney fans. Um, what do you think was the key moment in this story when, when Disney lost the chance to make Mineral King happen? There's so much to the story that we sort of discover. I mean, there's a few moments. I mean, Walt obviously died only about a year into the planning, which is a really mm -hmm. big blow. I think if we had to kind of pick one spot where, it, you know, kind of point of no return would probably be in 1969 when the Sierra Club filed its first lawsuit against this. I mean, Disney, despite all this environmental opposition that had happened almost from the inception of the project, Disney was kind of all systems go with this up until... Mm -hmm early 1969 is when they turned in kind of their final plans to the Forest Service. Those were accepted and everything was good to go. And then about six months later was when the lawsuit was filed by the Sierra Club that basically tied it up into legal limbo right. for you know the next three, four years. And we think, you know, at that point, Disney was certainly aware of a lot of these objections that the club had. And, you know, certainly they probably maybe had the opportunity to sit down point by point, go through some of this stuff. And even later on, as we mentioned in the book, Disney kind of scaled down its plans. They had some alternative transportation options and things like that. Mm -hmm. And if you thought of that stuff maybe a little earlier, there's still a chance it could have happened. I just don't think they, they maybe took the environmental opposition as seriously, you know, as they should have realized, not realizing it was going to go to court and cause all these uh, tie-ups. And and the whole culture, the popular view of environmentalism was changing so much. I mean, it was just a rapidly changing environment in which Disney was operating at that point, too. Exactly. Yeah, it was. I think they went into it at one point in American history. Yeah. And then a few years later, it was just it shifted. I think that was a big reason why this failed was really just because of the timing of this yeah. and where there's very, you know, concerns about development, everything like that. And, and Walt wasn't there at the moment. And Walt wasn't there. Exactly. Yeah. Now, very often nonfiction writers kind of become advocates when writing. But one of the things I loved about this book is that you're really not pitching the superiority of one side or the other. I mean, you might be Disney fans, you might not be skiers, but, uh, you know, 
the approach really keeps a balance between the various points of view in the story, including Disney, the families that use the valley, and the environmental activists. I mean, what was your approach to maintain that balance when you were putting this book together? Sure. And thanks for for saying that. That was what we tried to accomplish while writing this was to have that balance. I think when we realized, again, obviously writing this book was a long process and we talked to, to many people on both sides, the Disney side and of course the environmental side as well, and realizing that they both had valid points. You know, of course, the Disney aspect would have been exciting. It would have changed a lot of things. What Walt was creating was very genuine to to what he was passionate about, which was wildlife and nature. And the the people that opposed it obviously had valid reasons for not wanting this to to exist. And I think it was kind of an aha moment for us at one point when we're like, you know, I think to do this story justice, let's basically go back and kind of switch points of view. Like every other mm. chapter, we we more or less switch points of view so people can gain perspective and also a little bit of sympathy and empathy for both sides, because I think it was kind of heartbreaking on both sides. And, and when we're writing it, we realized we need to have both of these perspectives in there and and we want to have people read it and and kind of come away with an opinion, I think too. And, and we're definitely curious to know when people read it and if people are reading it and tell us which side they um, that they're on, if they think that this Disney development should have happened or not. We're very, very curious. I'm talking with uh, Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, the authors of Disneyland on the Mountain, a great new history of the uh, Never Happened Mineral King project. Uh, why don't you tell me where we can get a copy of this book? Well, yeah, the book's available on Amazon, of course, uh, Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org, your local bookstore can probably order it for you. Um, we do have a website, DisneylandOnTheMountain.com, that has links to the various places to buy it and then a little more about us. And then, as Catherine said, there's a comment form on there, too, if people want to reach out for any reason. Great. Uh, you know, Catherine, you were just kind of talking about... Um, uh, the conclusions that people may draw after uh, reading this this very well-researched, very well-balanced book, um, it really spun me into a whole bunch of like hypothetical what-ifs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the big ones for me is, I mean, and I'd, I'd love to hear what your take on is. Do you have any sense on how the ski industry in America and maybe around the world might have developed if Disney had successfully built the Mineral King project? Yeah, I mean, you know, Disney was ahead of his time as always, right? I mean, this all this whole story kind of starts only five years after Disneyland had opened. So this was really only right. would have been their second big project like this. And Disneyland, as we all know, sort of reinvented what the amusement park was. And Mineral King would have really reinvented what the ski resort of that day was. I mean, the times caught up, caught up eventually to what Walt had envisioned, which was, you know, this year round resort with different activities in winter and summer and restaurants and hotels and shops, you know, no cars allowed, very pristine wilderness and things like that. I mean, I think that's a lot of what we see in a lot of ski resorts now, but we think if Mineral King would have been built, I mean, first of all, there probably would have been a lot of interesting things that we don't even know about that would have, you know, other resorts would have followed, but we think that maybe that acceleration of that trend of that year round, you know, recreation destination resort would have happened probably a lot earlier. Do you think 
looking back with, with all of your research here, was there anything that the Walt Disney Company could have done differently to save this project? Sort of like we mentioned before, you know, there was that brief window of time where they probably could have sat down with environmentalists and kind of gone through their objections and worked to overcome them. But, you know, like Catherine said, this happened right on the cusp of a whole different era in environmentalism and environmental law. There was a law passed in 1970 called the National Environmental Policy Act that required big federal projects like this to go through like an environmental review process. So the whole landscape kind of quickly changed under their feet. And, you know, there was a point kind of of, of no return where, you know, they, they really tried. They looked at another location for a while in California called Independence Lake. They tried to scale back the project. They tried a bunch of ways to still make it happen. But, you know, beyond that one point in 69, I don't know that there's really much else they could have done. Yeah, because they did try to compromise at, at mm -hmm. one point, but this this obviously was years, years later when the opposition was really heating up. But yeah, trying to scale it down and stuff. And at that point, the Sierra Club and, and all the others that opposed it were kind of like, no, we don't want this at all. So it, it felt like, nothing that they could, nothing Disney could do. It felt like it was ever going to be really accomplished. So. And one of the fascinating things about the book for me, real eye opener was I, you know, talking here, you might get the sense that, okay, this environmental movement was inevitable. It was going to happen. There was nothing that could really mineral King to help make this environmental movement. Yeah. And that's one of the fascinating parts about this book. Tell me a little bit about how, um, Disney's pursuit of Mineral King ultimately created the movement that was Mineral King's demise. That's what was so interesting about this book. And, the, you know, uh, on the on the one hand, Disney helped sort of helped to create the whole environmental movement yeah. with Bambi, with the True Life Adventures documentary mm -hmm. series. So that was kind of the first sort of irony, if you will, is that this whole group of kids that grew up on those films now are the new environmentalists that are opposing this resort. Right. So that was kind of number one. Yeah. And then, you know, as the 60s went on and as environmentalism grew in, in stature, along with, you know, civil rights movement and women's rights and all the other big movements of the 60s, you know, this kind of became a, you know, not maybe not a perfect target, but I mean, it's, you know, it's something that easy to grasp was like, oh, Disney of Disneyland is going to build this, you know, monstrosity resort in the mountain is kind of how they sold it. So it kind of became an easy thing for people to wrap their heads around and kind of rally behind. And then when the Supreme Court case happened, another interesting fact that, that we didn't realize is that, you know, the Sierra Club lost the Supreme Court. Case, right. That, which means you, you, <laughs> Legally, you Disney like, won. Yeah. You yeah. think, oh, that's how the story ends. Supreme Court ruled against it and it was all over. Mm. But in fact, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the resort happening. But there were a couple of famous dissents in that case, including one by William Douglas that made reference to an essay called Do Trees Have Standing? And kind mm -hmm. of this whole idea that, you know, natural, beautiful places were worth protection simply on their aesthetic beauty alone, not because someone has a financial or personal stake in it. So it was just kind of this whole way of thinking about the environment that that case really like brought out into the light. And then the Supreme Court also in their ruling, you know, basically told the Sierra Club, you can go back and refile your suit and show more how you'll be affected, which is kind of the flip side of what those dissents said. But that kind of became a roadmap also yeah, for yeah. environmental groups to file suits. So, yeah, there's a lot of ways that it just sort of 
shifted thinking around that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it's like a referee making the game losing call against you, but then bringing you over and saying, here, by the way, this is the game plan on how you win next week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good analogy. Yeah. Totally. Just, yeah, and fascinating. Um, what was your favorite moment in this whole story, either in researching it or something that you discovered along the way that's in the book? Boy, I there's so many moments I feel like on both sides that, that was interesting. One thing that popped in my head when you asked that question was there is this moment in the in the 1970s where uh, then Disney president Card Walker puts out this ad in he takes out this full page newspaper ad throughout California, basically saying, like, stop picking on us, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, this is genuine. This is why we want to do this. This is why it's right. And I think that just shocked me in so many ways. I mean, there's so many moments of this that I of this story that has been so interesting, especially, you know, there was a march on Disneyland at some point, there was a bunch of protests, all that. But something about this moment with Card Walker, I thought was so fun and interesting because also throughout this battle and a lot of the legal battle, because actually the Sierra Club is, as people will read about this, they actually did not technically sue Disney. They sued the development, but they sued mm -hmm. the U.S. government because the U.S. government allowed this to happen. But so Disney was trying to kind of stay calm, not say too much during this. And then that Card Walker ad was such a reversal. And it it really kind of made us laugh in a way and and also was was just really interesting that they were basically finally fighting back i kind of i kind of liked that yeah but uh 1970s public relations was very different than yeah, 2020 public relations i mean just you would do that you, much differently today oh yeah can you imagine Iger doing this right now just putting out this this ad um okay. just, uh, for, first of all as somebody who has worked in the newspaper industry for years can you imagine anyone buying no. a full page newspaper ad no that would be wonderful nobody does it. that anymore yes we both worked, we both have worked for newspapers so we uh we definitely have a soft spot for that so we would also enjoy seeing people buy buy those newspaper ads uh rocky mountain news r.i.p but yeah, exactly. um, one of the moments that i really liked in the book and i wanted to ask you about you know what were some of your favorite moments where somebody just turned out to predict the future 100% accurately 50 years in advance and other ones were completely missed it and there's one, I think it's, I'm looking at my notes here. That's why I paused for a second. I think it's on page 51 where they're talking about a, a Senate report that somebody had uh, quoted on yeah. Mineral King talking about, well, by the year like 2020 or something or 2000, I forget which one it was, um, Americans will only be working 15 hours a week and we'll have seven weeks of vacation every year. So we're going to need recreation like Mineral King for them. And I'm like, that was a miss. <laughs> yes, seriously. Don't we all wish that that would be the case? Um, we might only be getting paid for 15 hours a week, but we're yeah, definitely exactly. working more than that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was like the space age, you know, where everyone thought technology was going to just solve mm -hmm. all these problems and everything was going to become automated and, you know. And right. technology became the problem because now we're working more than ever. And, right, right, right. You know, looking at your email on your phone and your free time. 
So what were some of your favorite uh, kind of like predictive hits and misses by people that were involved in this story back then? I mean, you know, Walt, as usual, had the had the good predictive eye. I mean, first of all, sort of what ski resorts would become or sort of, mm -hmm. you know, he knew that they were sort of ripe for change, that that family element could be right. run successfully. And also he was, you know, long before the Forest Service really put that area up for an official bid, he was buying land all around it to, you know, have to be able to own a lot of the land around there if and when this you know, came out for development and Disney went in, you know, he didn't, he probably didn't, you know, know for sure if he was even going to win the bid to yeah. get it, but he, you know, he saw this vision as usual in his head and, and could see that, you know, buying all the land around there could only help them if and when this got built and they could build a lot of other hotels and things like that, you know, all around the area. And similarly to, to Greg's point about Walt being, having the foresight I mean, we all talked about, well, none of us are really skiers, but mm -hmm. we all like going to ski areas, right? Fine. We like going to experience it. So it was so much more, even though it was quote unquote, a ski resort, Walt again, had that foresight to be like, okay, this isn't just a ski resort. This is this year round outdoor recreation experience. People, they even thought that the summer months would be an even bigger draw and as we see for a lot of, yep. you know, ski areas, again, we're in Colorado, we see this, tons of people go up there mm -hmm. in, you mm -hmm. know, the warmer months, it's obviously way more, way easier to get to yeah. and things like that. But that's another, you know, he was right on about that, right? Yeah. And uh, if there's one thing that I think the casual Disney fan um, knows about the Mineral King project is this is what gave us Country Bear Jamboree. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was, yeah, one of the things that, you know, that he, he made a point really early on of saying this is not going to be a Disneyland. This is, you know, our title is a little tongue in cheek because we're sort right. of pointing at what people feared it was going to become, uh, you know, but he said this will not be a Disneyland, purely recreation project, you know, we're going to try to preserve the natural beauty and all these things, which he said very early on, long before this environmental battle really mm -hmm. heated up. But, you know, at some point, I think he thought we got to add a little... Disney magic to this and worked with Mark Davis to start creating this, this band of audio animatronic bears that they were going to say came out of the woods and learned how to play instruments and they would entertain people. And then when it looked like Mineral King wasn't going to happen in the early seventies, then that became one of the opening day attractions at, at Walt Disney World. So I love at the end of the book, you've got just this wonderful detail about how some of these things that people were talking about within the company about Mineral King have gone on to influence not just Disney, but people in the ski industry. Like Vale came in and just took yeah. a whole bunch of ideas that Walt yeah. had for Mineral King and used that to build probably the biggest ski operator in America today. Exactly. Yeah. And that was another certain, that was a huge surprise to us. We had no mm -hmm. idea about Vale. Um, didn't recall at all. I mean, I, I live in Colorado and I grew up on the East coast, but having no concept of this sport goofy situation, which, which readers mm -hmm. can find out more about how that's all tied in, but another huge surprise, um, you know, how, again, even though the story ends in 1978, technically it, so much then happened even in the years, years since, which really influenced so much, which was which was really fun to write about as well. In doing your research for this book, who did you find yourself gaining more and more respect for 
And on the flip side, was there anyone that you kind of lost respect <laughs> for in this whole reporting process? I think, you know, in some ways I gained, you know, not that I had didn't have respect for Walt already, but really seeing, you know, I guess in some ways, maybe I was expecting to, you know, at some point see, see it more as a very commercial project or cash grab or something. But I mean, his, his motives throughout it and his like passion for this whole wilderness thing really seemed very pure, like the whole time through and kind of same with the Sierra club. I mean, they had a sort of a a moment of crisis right about in the book where they had actually suggested this area as a possible ski resort, like 20 years prior back in the forties. And so they had to kind of, you know, wrestle within themselves you know can we reverse course now is it too late are we going to damage our credibility but everything they did was you know in line with what they believed in and things like that so i I would say more than anything we probably gained respect for both sides i mean no one really came out of it seeming in any way like disingenuous or you know just Mm -hmm. just in it for the money or in it for the glory or whatever i mean every everyone on both sides was was very passionate and true about what they wanted yeah and that's what makes this such an interesting story in that it defies you know the easy simplistic categorization of good person versus bad person and you know simple conflict it just raises so many different issues what do you hope that readers will take from from this story i think i mean just building on that fact of just learning about both sides Mm -hmm. I think part of it you know for the for the Disney fan or casual Disney fan or diehard Disney fan Mm -hmm. is to learn a little bit more certainly about who Walt was and you know I mean of course a lot of us as fans have have read all about him and 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 think that we know tons about him but I feel like there's Mm -hmm. always kind of interesting things like the Olympics hasn't been explored that much the the true life adventures and the fact that he has was really lauded by a lot of these environmental groups. And that was something that we kind of unearthed a little bit and uncovered a bit in our, in our research. So we're excited for people to find out about that, but, but really, again, just because this story is a lot of people think, you know, at one point Disney tried to try to do this and it didn't work out, but actually it was, really monumental for for the Disney company, for the environmental movement, and really in American history. I mean, this is this really big, comprehensive, important story. And and we're just really excited about, you know, for people to find out more about that. Okay. Uh, again, Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, who are the authors of Disneyland on the Mountain. Uh, we've been talking about Mineral King, the ski resort that the Walt Disney Company had planned for California that never really happened, but it helped create the ski industry and the environmental movement as we know them today. It's just, like I said, one of the the, the best Disney history books I've read in a while. Uh, so Disneyland on the Mountain, uh, thank you, Greg and Catherine, for, for joining us here. It is congratulations on the book, and it's been a pleasure to learn more about this story. Thanks again to Greg and Catherine for joining me today on Theme Park Insider. I'm your host, Robert Niles, and thanks for listening to the Theme Park Insider podcast. You can get more about what's happening at theme parks around the world online at themeparkinsider.com.